Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Joining me is Nikolai Petro. He is professor of politics at the University of Rhode Island, editor of Ukraine in Crisis, speaking to us now from Odessa, Ukraine. Professor Petro, welcome to Pushback. Thank you. Nice to be here. As we're speaking, the Biden-Putin summit in Geneva has concluded. I'm just curious, your overall takeaway from this meeting. I was a pessimist going in. I'm glad that things turned out as well as they did. And how did they turn out well, in your eyes? They turned out well uh, because they set up the preconditions for what would be a fundamental change in the relationship were all the things that were mentioned by the two participants realized. That fundamental change would be moving from viewing the relationship between the United States and Russia as a zero-sum relationship, where if one side wins, the other side has to lose, into something, into the type of relationship that both countries could benefit from. All right, so let's go through some of the key flashpoints because I heard both Putin and Biden describe the meeting as cordial, but in terms of actual progress on all the issues that have been, that have put these two countries at odds, I didn't hear much to give me an indication of progress. Let's start with where you are, Ukraine. Both uh, Putin and Biden committed to uh, a process based on the Minsk Accords, but we've heard that before. So maybe if you could explain to us what the Minsk Accords mean, uh, what has stalled the implementation of them so far, and whether you think there's going to be any breakthrough on that front or any indication from this meeting that there will be a breakthrough. I disagree with the, that assessment of the meeting because it is not the function of... Uh, summit meetings to produce spontaneous breakthroughs. What happened at Reykjavik between Gorbachev and uh, President Reagan was not only a fluke, any professional diplomat would say it's dangerous to do that sort of thing. Um, the, the progress is will be coming in the future from the broad uh, pa marching orders, from the marching orders that have now been set. And that's, that's the best thing that could come out of any summit. With respect to the Minsk Accords, there is indeed nothing new. But that is a positive thing because... The Minsk Accords obligate Ukraine to enter into a direct negotiation with the rebel forces in eastern Ukraine. Uh, to the extent that um, they have been reaffirmed by the United States, the United States is in effect saying, 
this is what we want too. The Ukrainian position for the past several years has been that the Minsk Accords cannot be implemented, period, because we no longer agree with those terms. So to have the United States go on record and say that, no, these, these are the parameters of the agreement and uh, we're not uh, talking about changing them uh, is in fact a clear signal to uh, Ukraine that it needs to move forward on implementing the accord as signed. Okay, but answer me this. Is there not then a contradiction in U.S. policy? Because just recently there was this flare-up on the Ukraine-Russia border, the prevailing narrative in the U.S. media that Russia was amassing troops and that was going to lead to this potential invasion of Ukraine. What actually happened was, I think, a more uh, complicated story, which is that with U.S. encouragement, the Ukrainian government ramped up its military uh, campaigns in eastern Ukraine, including its troop presence. And so in that context, you can see Russia as responding. So you did have, if my reading of that uh, flare up is correct, you did have Biden encouraging an increasingly bellicose Ukrainian government in the same region where it's now saying we have to implement the Minsk Accord. So, I mean, first of all, assuming my assessment, I mean, is my assessment correct of what happened? And if so, do you see Biden now by reaffirming Minsk shifting away from that? There is no evidence to either confirm or deny that interpretation of events, namely that uh, the Biden administration uh, gave some sort of approval to uh, a strategy that has indeed been talked about a lot in the past. Uh, in the Ukrainian media, namely uh, a, a military blitzkrieg uh, in eastern Ukraine that would settle the issue once and for all before the Russians uh, or, or anybody really could mobilize uh, to prevent it. Um, so we don't know what happened back then, but we know what they've talked about yesterday and we know what those words and that commitment mean moving forward. Uh, there's been no walk back. There's been no difference of interpretation. There may be members of the mid-level bureaucracy in the United States who do not agree with that, who take um, the official Ukrainian position that the Minsk Accords need to be revisited. But we haven't heard from them yet. So right now, all, I, all we can actually say is that the United States is committed to the fulfillment of the Minsk Accords as written. Okay, answer me this, and I'm not asking this rhetorically, I'm genuinely curious. Does Ukraine, the Zelensky government, in making you know major decisions, do you think it ever acts without U.S. approval or at least tacit approval? That is an interesting question. Because, and I say that uh, now with a certain degree of uncertainty, whereas perhaps a month ago, I would have answered that, no, that couldn't happen, that the United, uh, that Ukraine is totally beholden uh, in its uh, policies to the dictates uh, 
essentially of the United States, but it is um, administered through the through the mechanism of, of the G7 ambassadors group here. But the reason I think there uh, uh, the Ukraine is moving away from that is because um, President Zelensky has given two uh, singular uh, uh, interviews, uh, uh, noteworthy interviews, one to the Financial Times and one yesterday in, in an effort to draw back some of the attention to Ukraine from the Geneva summit, to uh, foreign correspondents. And in them, he laid out an entire list of grievances that Ukraine has with its um, with its Western partners and how uh, Ukraine uh, uh, really has the moral right to demand immediate membership in NATO. I don't think that's an exaggeration to say that that is essentially uh, Zelensky's position. Uh, secondly, that the IMF uh, should be uh, spending uh, money and loaning money to Ukraine without any preconditions, because after all, as Zelensky said, it's Ukrainians dying for the defense of uh, Europe's liberties. And uh, Ukraine simply has to spend the money that it has first and foremost on its military and not on any other kind of uh, reforms that uh, the IMF may be interested in. So there is now, a clear divergence of views, and uh, and uh, the Zelensky administration has taken certain steps, such as uh, the appointment of senior personnel uh, in uh, 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 the area of anti-corruption, the anti-corruption institutes, government institutes that have been set up here, and. Uh, 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 natural resources that uh, have been publicly criticized by the G7. Uh, and uh, Zelensky has said, well, you know, wh what am I getting for this? If, if I do what you say, you need to give me what I'm asking for. And my demands are simple, NATO and IMF funding. Minsk calls for Ukraine respecting some form of political autonomy for the eastern part of Ukraine, the part that has been uh, resisting the U.S.-backed coup since 2014. Is that a red line for the Ukrainian government and for the U.S., or do you see them coming around to, to respecting that? So the... Uh the official position of the Ukrainian government is a contradiction. On the one hand, it is publicly committed to the fulfillment of the Minsk Accords. It, however, pledges to fulfill the Minsk Accords uh, properly modified to meet, um, as they see it, reality. Um, at the same time, the stipulations of the current Minsk Accord, um, which, uh, which uh, Ukraine um, would like to see changed, 
includes, as I mentioned, direct negotiations over the status of Ukraine, over, over the status of Donbass, the Donbass region in Ukraine. Uh, it includes uh, constitutional amendments uh, to the Ukrainian constitution, which would allow for extensive local territorial self-administration. It would uh, include uh, this type of uh, self-administration would uh, presumably violate several points uh, recently introduced into Ukrainian legislation, uh, specifically regarding uh, the mandatory professional use of the Ukrainian language. Uh, Donbass is overwhelmingly a Russian-speaking region, and it is always insisted that uh, that would be its official language. So that would be a direct contradiction. Um, and, and probably a host of, of other uh, smaller issues. So it's difficult to see how this um, uh, square uh, can its 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 rough edges can be can be rounded uh, to satisfy everything. I asked a question um, of some experts on Ukraine earlier this week uh, that it was not a rhetorical question, but I didn't get a really um, very comforting answer. I asked, "Is there any way for all the that among all the participants, someone doesn't wind up being humiliated by any peace agreement. And my sense was that um, it's difficult to envision an outcome uh, that would not humiliate somebody. Yeah, and on that front, that's why I have a hard time believing that Joe Biden will go along with a viable peace agreement because Joe Biden was so instrumental in the coup that I think triggered this entire thing, the Maidan coup well, in 2013, 2014. Uh, here's how I understand that position. The United States is not part of the Minsk agreement. Part of the concept behind Minsk was let the Europeans deal with it. It's in their backyard and uh, we have other fish to fry. So. One of the possible ways that you could reconcile this seeming contradiction is if the Biden administration were also in this way signaling that it was backing off from uh, any desire to become directly involved in the negotiations. All right. So one development that I think signals the um, optimism that you've taken from the summit happened before the summit where Biden reversing the Trump policy dropped this U.S. effort to prevent the construction of the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. And the Washington Post recently reported that there were officials, including his secretary of state, Anthony Blinken, who were lobbying heavily for the Trump policy, which is basically to keep these sanctions on Germany and specifically a German company uh, that would prevent this that would stop this pipeline from being completed. And Biden went against them, went against the hawks in his own administration, which is uh, a nod certainly to Germany, but also toward Russia as well, which saw this project as very, very important. Can you talk about the significance of this decision 
uh, the forces that were opposing Biden's move to lift the Trump sanctions on Ukraine and Ukraine's position, because Ukraine was also the Ukrainian government was also very against, as I understand it, the completion of Nord Stream 2. In his latest interview to Western correspondents, President Zelensky specifically referred to the Nord Stream 2 pipeline as a weapon aimed against Ukraine. And that, um, in his view, uh, it, it forms part of a slippery slope strategy that uh, Russia is using to uh, basically lull European, the West, the Europeans and the United States into agreeing to the status quo. The status quo being Crimea as part of Russia, uh, Donbass uh, as a a non-threatening uh, uh, to Europe as non-threatening to European security, uh, and therefore, uh, why can't we all just uh, make money and and get along? And there is a certain uh, I think he's right in that. I think uh, he has correctly identified the gist of Russia's uh, long-term strategy. And I think it's, um, it's a strategy that works uh, for most Europeans and uh, for some in the United States uh, administration as well. Uh, I don't know um, what the balance of uh, advisors and forces for and against uh, policy uh, on sanctions is in the administration. Um, but someone needed to make, must have made, I should say, a very forceful case that sanctions have failed, period. And more to the point, there was nothing the United States could ever do that would stop the final realization of the North Dream 2 pipeline. No matter what pretenses uh, were raised by its by sanctioned supporters, it was going to happen. In if if that is indeed uh, the perspective that prevailed, and there seems to from Biden's rhetoric, uh, he seems to suggest that. Um, then. Uh, the the wiser course of action, the statesmanly course of action, is to cut your losses before you wind up uh, basically having invested all of this uh, energy into a policy that was doomed, uh, well, that is doomed, uh, because you are essentially squandering your resources and uh, making many more enemies uh, than you need to. Uh, especially in Europe. Right. And of course, the whole conversation, the whole issue presumes that the U.S. has the right to begin with to impose sanctions to prevent the construction of infrastructure in foreign countries. It's uh... well, that's one of the things. May, may I? I'm sorry for no. interjecting, but made a very good point, um, which is uh, one that Putin uh, made at his uh, makes often. Uh, and uh, one that um, 
he, uh, uh, as I read the tea leaves from a distance, uh, that he believes Biden concurs with. And that is, um, we take public positions and we, we, make, um, um, we make moral statements, but uh, at the end of the day, pragmatism prevails, must prevail. Pragmatism must prevail beyond uh, any sense of moral outrage. Um, because uh, the consequences of allowing our emotions and our sense of um, self-righteousness to drive policy uh, is simply too great. All right. So speaking of imperial hubris, Biden made a comment about Russia's supposed interference in other countries' elections. He said his credibility worldwide shrinks Let's get this straight. How would it be if the United States were viewed by the rest of the world as interfering with the elections directly of other countries and everybody knew it? What would it be like if we engaged in activities that he is engaged in? It diminishes the standing of a country that is desperately trying to make sure it maintains its standing as a major world power. And so it's not just what I do. It's what the actions that other countries take, in this case, Russia, that are contrary to international norms, it's the price they pay. They are not, they are not able to dictate what happens in the world. There are other nations of significant consequence, i.e. the United States of America being one of them. I'm wondering if you can comment on how that comment from Biden would be perceived just in Russia and Ukraine alone, forgetting the rest of the world, where Russia in the 1990s, the heavy role of the U.S. in preserving the disastrous rule of Boris Yeltsin with U.S. advisors even going over and helping to run his campaign. And then in Ukraine, where, you know, Biden himself was involved, as we talked about a bit earlier, in the 2014 Maidan coup. Right. You know, um, one of the things that um, made President Reagan endear endearing to many. Uh, I think we will see, uh, and, and I think we're seeing some of that uh, also in President Biden, uh, is this um, romantic uh, notion of the past. <laughs> you know, when we were young, we were, we did all these great things and, uh, um, and, and, and we stand for the good and the right unlike uh, our opponents. Obviously, um, there's little, it was an absurd statement. And it's not just Russia, Ukraine, the vast majority of countries in the world. I, I mean, you'd be hard pressed, I think, to find a country where the majority of people did not say that the United States was involved in influencing policy more or less openly, but uh, and many believe covertly in their countries. And the simple proof of that is uh, a um, poll done by the Alliance for Democracies, um, basically a, a NATO uh, spinoff, uh, regarding the countries that uh, were regarded as the greatest threat 
to democracy in the world. And the United States came first among, I think, 50 odd countries uh, that were polled um, uh, as being the greatest threat by, by a wide margin. So uh, I wish, um, you know, uh, let, let's just say the, the best spin that could be put on that sort of statement uh, is that it was for domestic consumption. And domestically in Ukraine, how was this uh, summit perceived? Is it a major topic of conversation? And what's your all mood? What's the overall mood in Ukraine right now? My understanding is that this country has just been decimated by years of war with no end in sight. It's been bad for the economy. A lot of people have left the country. As we wrap, if you could just talk about what the impact of the uh, war in the Donbass has been and Ukraine being at the center of this uh, fight between the U.S. and Russia and how this meeting was perceived, whether or not there's hope that this this sort of uh, perpetual warfare internally is coming to an end. It would be a mistake to think of most of Ukraine as being somehow ravaged by war. Of course, people uh, know about the conflict. Uh, uh, It appears in the news and people would like it to end, but for very different reasons uh, often or or a combination of reasons. Uh, One that often comes up is because uh, it is simply uh, a factor that that makes a foreign investment much less likely, even though in uh, the major cities um, uh, of Ukraine um, uh, are, in fact, hundreds of miles from the front lines. uh, And there is no perceptible impact uh, of the war here in Odessa, for example. Nevertheless, the the type of reporting about it and the fact that the conflict is ongoing uh, dampens uh, investor interest and investor confidence. And that's a problem. Um, The reporting here uh, is very polarized, if you can imagine, even more than in the United States. Uh, and I can say this because if you got, as you very rarely but occasionally do get, representatives of uh, the point of view that, uh, on the one hand, the more or less official point of view, Russia is the perpetual enemy of Ukraine and uh, must be fought to the bitter end. And on the other side, we have to find a way to get along uh, with Russia because it's not going anywhere and Ukraine isn't going anywhere. When those two sides meet on a television show or even in parliament, uh, fisticuffs usually result. Um, And by the way, didn't Zelensky uh, only a few months ago shut down three major opposition media outlets, just ban them completely, which was cheered by the U.S. government? Yes. And um, but I should hasten, uh, I hasten to add that. they continue to exist in the internet, uh, on YouTube, 
especially if you use um, a, a VPN, which masks the fact that you are in Ukraine. There are uh, a million ways to get around these these um, uh, these childish, really, uh, attempts at uh, censoring uh, opposition voices uh, in Ukraine. Um, but nevertheless, um, uh, that's what the government is involved in uh, right now. And uh, there's very little pushback from that same G7 group that uh, is so keen on offering uh, advice and specific recommendations on who to appoint to government ministries, they have had uh, very little critical to say about shutting down um, three major um, national networks, uh, firing 3,000 journalists, and um, uh, putting, uh, let's say, um, leveling uh, an accusation of treason against uh, the leader of uh, the largest opposition party in the parliament. Uh, and that's unfortunate because I think it lends to a misperception in the, among the Ukrainian elite that uh, the West will back them in anything. And the danger of that is that they then do not need, do, do not really carefully consider their options with respect, what the limits are of what uh, they can realistically achieve um, um, uh, and how far they can go in terms of uh, challenging Russia, but also how much support they will have uh, in the West. And everything that you're saying about we, what Ukraine is doing to opposition leaders, to opposition media outlets, sounds like what U.S. media outlets spend all their time criticizing Russia for, allegedly. You know, constant questions yesterday about Alexei Navalny, which I think falsely portrayed him as the opposition leader in Russia, when I don't think that's the case. The Communist Party, as I understand, has more support than he does. But uh, did you see... Which is not saying much, by the right, way. Right, right, right. But do you see a contradiction there between, you know, obsessively focusing on Russia's alleged suppression of dissent? And certainly in Russia, there is, you know, state control over the, the media, especially television. Television is heavily skewed towards the government, but not saying anything about what's happening in, in Ukraine. Um, well, I... I agree that it's a problem, but my solution to that problem is not more criticism of everybody. It is uh, to uh, not make that the primary task of diplomacy. What individual journalists write is up to individual uh, journalists, and they can write 100 articles a day about uh, Navalny or any issue that they think is important to them. Um, but um, the national interest must be guided by a wide array of conflicting, often conflicting interests, and they need to be carefully balanced. And the message that I would leave us with is, is a hopeful one, which is I think that the Biden administration has begun to realize uh, that there is a need for such a balance and to thread it 
more carefully, which is something I didn't expect. I mean, a, a month ago, I would have said um, it's all rhetoric with no substance. Now we're beginning to see a little bit of substance and a little bit of balance. Well, I'm still with your position from a month ago, but I'll happily be corrected <laughs> as uh, as things proceed. Nikolai Petro, professor of politics at the University of Rhode Island, editor of Ukraine in Crisis, speaking to us from Odessa, Ukraine. Thanks a lot. Thank you.